Thank you. You're so kind. It's so good to be here and uh, to be together. This is the first time we've been in uh, worshipping with uh, the church family here, although we've been kind of connecting with various different people uh, in um, the, the kind of community, and we've loved it. Phil and Sarah have been such a, a source of strength and support to us uh, in our journey and through our ups and our downs and uh, the kind of um, some of the tricky bits of church leadership and the joys of it as well. And we're so grateful. We're grateful uh, to you guys and uh, to this extended family for making us feel so at home. It's wonderful. And I wanted to, I'm going to just kick off and then Paul will come and uh, finish, bring a bit more um, from what I'm going to say, but I wanted to introduce us first so that you feel like you know who is speaking to you and uh, we can feel um, together in it. So uh, I'm Joy and Paul. Uh, we met at university. We went not from Lincoln, but we both left home when we were 18 and uh, went to university in Lincoln and um, fell in love with each other, fell in love with the city, didn't want to leave. Uh, God really got our heart for the city that we uh, have been adopted by. And uh, we felt that God was calling us to bring hope and transformation alongside his people in our community. And isn't it wonderful when you go to university or as parents, you send your kids to university or you as an individual leave home for the first time and then you find a tribe of people who love Jesus and love you in the same way that Jesus loves you and you feel so at home. We felt so developed and uh, looked after, uh, believed in by our church family and so we wanted to stay. And um, big shout out to you guys for looking after and Adam Windle like that. He came from Lincoln. We love Adam and I know that he feels really at home with you here and so it's great that we can send people from our city to another city and know that they find the same kind of community and, and home. And it's great as well to be in um, uh, alongside a church family that believe the same thing but in different cities. So we are living for the transformation of our city in Lincoln, the mobilisation of the people of Jesus to bring his hope and his life to the people that we're doing our life around. And I love that you guys are going after that as well. Has anyone um, been to Lincoln before? It's a lovely place. It's quite flat. So although people go, oh, Lincoln, it's got a massive hill. It's only got one hill. And there's maybe a 60-mile um, circumference around the city of just flatland. So when we came yesterday, we've got two kids. Um, Finley is 10 and Poppy is 7. And Finley um, has been across the Pennines a few times. When he, when he first went across the Pennines in the, um, the car, he just went, whoa, it's like Africa which shows the difference in landscape. He's never been to Africa, so he doesn't quite know what Africa really looks like. Uh, and Poppy yesterday, as we were driving over, she, she was like holding on. So Finn still, he loves creation. He loves beauty. Uh, he loves hills. So he just kept going, look at that mountain. Look at that. And then Poppy was just going, I think we're going to fall off the edge. We're going to fall off. We're going to fall off as we're going over Woodhead Pass. And so... Uh, 
interesting different landscape. Uh, Lincoln's got a big mound in the middle of the city where there's an old Roman castle fortress there. Uh, and I love digging into history and finding out the context of people's lives who lived in the same place that we live in. I know Manchester also was kind of founded by Roman people. And I think there's incredible um, wealth and riches in that. And I also I love finding about history of people. I did my um, ancestry G- uh, DNA test. Anyone else done that to find out about your genetic history? No. So uh, someone bought it me as a present. So you have to kind of spit in a tube and then send it off. And then they analyse your genetics. And I was really hoping for something really interesting. So in the history of our family, I was wondering, and maybe a bit of Mediterranean, uh, Middle Eastern blood, maybe um, North African and I got my results a few weeks ago on email, so I opened them a bit tentatively. I'm 3% Norwegian, 7% Irish and Scottish. You expect that, don't you, if you've grown up in England? 88% Northern English. I am basically from the Pennines uh, for as long as my family have ever uh, existed. I was slightly disappointed, but I do feel uh, at home with you guys here. I love Manchester. love what you're all going after. Love the... um, the potential and the pioneering gift, the breakthrough uh, gift that this, the church in Manchester has for this city. And I believe the rest of the UK is waiting and watching so that we can walk into the breakthrough that you guys uh, make. And I, I believe that Vine Life here has got a significant contribution to make to that. So we're excited to be with you and to be friends with you and to cheer you on and watch what God's doing so we can be part of that too. Uh, I think our nation needs it. I think our continent needs it. I've heard a few people say that the UK is in a national crisis. I'd quite like to reword it. I think we're facing unprecedented pivot point for change. I think we're all sensing it. Do you sense it? The, um, the words of Romans 8 echo around my heart and my mind as I listen to uh, my friends at the school gates, as I listen to the headlines in the news, as I talk to leaders in my city, uh, as I uh, speak with people in our church, as I connect with people at the supermarket checkout, the words of Romans 8 uh, remind me that we're part of a story. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning, as in the pain of childbirth, right up until this present time. When Paul talks about creation, he's talking about the whole of the world, humanity, the cosmos, and he uses this word, uh, creation's waiting in eager expectation or anticipation and hope. And uh, Paul makes up a word in the Greek that because there was no other word to kind of describe the hope or the expectation that he's feeling, he decides to make up another word that's only ever used one more time in the New Testament. He's kind of put these uh, three words together to make a word. Um, 
And I think everyone would have known what he means. So let me describe this to you. You know you can hear a new word. You've never heard it before, but you know what it means. Like, um, I put my clothes on the chair drobe rather than the wardrobe. Or if you're me, I put my clothes on the floor drobe rather than the wardrobe. And uh, my little girl, Poppy, she's like a gifted organiser. And sometimes she'll come and see me and go, Mummy, I put your clothes away for you. Uh, because my clothes live on the floor drobe. Uh, do you know what I mean? So when Paul's talking uh, about eager expectation, anticipation, and he makes a word up, his listeners or his readers would have known exactly what he's talking about. He uses this word again in Philippians 1 verse 20 when he's in prison and he's writing to his friends uh, from Rome. Uh, to, he's writing to his friends in Philippi uh, and he's in prison in Rome. And he is in chains and he writes about his future expectation. He uses the word that he makes up. Uh, He says in Philippians 1 verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I eagerly expect. And this word in the Greek is apokaridokia. Apokaridokia. So it's three words in one. And just like you've just heard about the floor robe, uh, he would, his li- uh, readers and listeners would have known what apokaridokia means. It's three words. The first word, apo, uh, means to turn away with concentration and ignore everything else. The second word, kara, means head. And the third word, dokia, means to stretch forward. Okay. So Paul's paraphrase, I'm paraphrasing Paul, but Paul's in um, prison telling his friends that he's eagerly waiting. He says, I'm in prison. I can't get out of this cell in prison, but I'm on tiptoes. I'm stretching my neck. My head is turned towards the future in anticipation for the hope that I am waiting for so that I can rejoice. So in the same way, he, when he writes to his friends in Rome, in, Ro- in Romans, he gives uh, creation a kind of personality. He, um, he talks about creation almost in the same way he's talking about himself in prison. And he says, creation is on her tiptoes. Her neck is outstretched. Her head is turned towards the future. And she's waiting and she's looking and she's searching and she's aching and she's longing and she is wondering who are these children of God that are going to be revealed so that I can be liberated from my prison. Apocaridokia. So when I think about our current cultural circumstances, I think of this. There's a groaning and an aching within humanity. Systems and structures, all of society, stood on tiptoes, neck outstretched, head turned towards the future, aching and longing for the mature, creative, compassionate, sacrificial body of Christ to be revealed in all of her glory, to see the liberation of the brokenness of society so that the church can lead the way in the way that she was made to. So I've heard cultural commentators talking about the moment that we're living in and describing it as post-truth or post-Christian. And I'm wondering whether this crisis and this aching and this groaning that we're all sensing and feeling and hearing around us is a response to this post-truth and post-Christian, like this isn't working for us. 
And I'm wondering, perhaps there's something different that is needed to emerge. Something that will begin to heal the aching wounds of our nation. Something that will liberate the bondage that we are feeling, the groaning and the longing that our culture and our country is expressing. And I read an interesting theory on culture change recently that I want to explain to you because I think there's something prophetic in it. And uh, it just sparked something in me for the church. So the theory is by a woman called Ruth DeFries. She's a scientist and she calls her theory ratchet, pivot, hatchet. I've had to write it down because I get ratchet and hatchet mixed up and um, that's not helpful. So um, she says, humans are experts in creating and changing culture in order to solve problems that we face in the world. And I agree with her. I think it's our markers uh, of identity as image bearers to create and change culture. So if we read in Genesis and we see that God created this beautiful garden, but it's full of raw materials. It's not finished. It's a little bit wild and uncultivated. And into the garden, he places humanity. And he says, you're made in my image, in my creative image. The creator of the heavens and the earth that we sung about this morning. He made us and he put us in an unfinished, a good place, but he never said it was finished. He said, that's good, but he never said it was finished. And then he gave us this mandate to create culture, to rule and to reign, to subdue the earth, to take dominion, to increase and to multiply, to be fruitful in it, to take the raw ingredients that he'd put on the earth and to uh, place our fingerprints on it, the fingerprints that represent the heavenly creator and make it all even better. So he gave us this mandate to develop and to create. And then we read from Genesis right at the beginning to Revelation right at the end and we hear about this vision, this dream that John had of a city that's coming down from heaven that is full of goodness and glory, that there's no more brokenness or sorrow anymore. Every tear will be wiped away. There is structure and development in this city and there is a banquet where the people of the earth bring to Jesus on the wedding day the, the fruit of culture and present it as their worship. So it speaks a story of the people of God made in the image of God, taking the raw ingredients of the world and making them into something stunning. Development, bringing our identity, creativity to the world. So I agree with Ruth DeFries, this scientist who says we're experts in culture change because I think that's the way we were designed. We were designed to change culture. She says that this change and progress happens in three possible steps. She calls it ratchet, pivot, hatchet. So a ratchet is a mechanical device that allows continuous linear or rotary motion in only one direction while preventing motion in the opposite direction. So a ratchet is something that accelerates in one particular direction. A pivot, we all know what a pivot is, I think, a center point of a rotating system. A turning in a new direction, uh, moving and facing the other way, like Ross. And a hatchet is a single-handed striking tool that's used to smash something up or start a fire. Okay, So, <clears throat> ratchet, pivot, hatchet. She says, every time a problem arises in society, a hatchet, so the problem's a hatchet, we don't want the problem, we smash it up. 
A pivot is developed so that humanity can create a new solution. So we've got the problem, we smash it up, we turn in a new direction, we create something new, and then the hatchet, sorry, I get mixed up, sorry, the ratchet, uh, uh, brings movement and acceleration of that new solution to the problem. Eventually, this new problem, this new progress will bring about its own new problems. So down comes the hatchet as people want change, which leads to another pivot, a change in direction, as society looks for a new innovation to address the newly created problems. So let me give you an example to kind of put the meat on the bones of all the ratchets and the hatchets. During the mid-20th century, the West developed a group-orientated culture to deal with the Great Depression and all the world wars. So the motto of this kind of group uh, culture could have been, we're all in this together. This is us, we're together. But that became too conformist and oppressive, especially to the non-dominant uh, group, to the marginalized people. And so a hatchet began uh, to be swung. And a new individualistic culture emerged. This was in the sexual revolution at the end of the 60s. So this is a pivot. People turn away from the, um, uh, the communal culture and they turn towards something different that will solve the problems of the marginalized, oppressed groups. Say, so we're all, uh, we are free to be whoever we want. That's the new motto. Uh, we are free to be ourselves. And this accelerates throughout all of Western society over 40 plus years. It's a great time. But excessive individualism has led to society being really fragmented, isolated, and divided. That's the hatchet. And a new pivot is needed. Ruth DeFries, the scientist, says that politics during a hatchet phase gets really nasty. That's made me think, maybe we're in a hatchet. Here's another recent example. The internet. That was a pivot. It was a creation uh, that changed the course of history. It brought incredible global connectivity that changed the way we work, shop, uh, date, research, bank, and communicate. And as a result, uh, all sorts of other progress has been developed. It made the ratchet. So the pivot changed, and then there was an acceleration into loads of different uh, designs and innovations. But as another result, this is the hatchet, we are more socially isolated than ever before. 24% of UK residents don't know the name of their neighbours. Our sense of community and connection uh, is fragmented. We don't understand our sense of place. Uh, and again, uh, we feel like there's chronic social isolation. So when I heard this uh, theory, the uh, ratchet, pivot, hatchet, it sparked something in me, maybe a little bit prophetic, of I think this is where we are as a nation. I think we're in a general and extensive hatchet moment in the UK. And hatchet moments are moments of groaning and aching and longing. And the Bible says it's because creation herself is waiting for the church to rise up and say we are the people who can lead us out of this into the pivot. If we are in a hatchet moment, then the pivot is on the horizon. And I feel it and I sense it. Uh, 
I think the pivots come in. I think it's been prophesied and prayed for. I think the culture and the nation, uh, the people, our neighbours, our friends at the school gate, the people we share our de- uh, the desk or our office with, they sense it too. They're all on tiptoes, their necks outstretched, their heads turned towards the future, and they are aching and longing and wondering, looking out, who are these people that are going to be revealed so that uh, our, our bondage and our brokenness can be liberated? I guess the question is, how ready are we? How mature are we? How able are we to bring liberation that the country, our friends, our neighbours are aching and longing for? I think if we don't lead, someone else will. So here are the, some of the hatchets I think I'm observing. You might be able to, knowing your neighbours, knowing your friends, knowing your workplace, you might be able to add to the list. I think there's a crisis of civic leadership in our nation. Who can we trust to take us to the place that we need to go? Where the heck do we need to go? There's a crisis of unity and community. So technology has led to increased connectivity and consumer possibilities. Amazing. But decreased intimacy. And I think this is playing out in our relationships, in our work, in our churches, and most starkly in the family. Children are growing up more stressed, more anxious, more depressed, more likely to self-harm. People are more isolated and lonely. Drug and alcohol abuse and debt is on the rise. And I think there's a crisis of truth. I think confusion and hopelessness are everywhere I go. What's truth? Who has the roadmap? How will we get there? The groaning of creation in our nation is getting louder and louder and the hatchet appears to be coming down. Who will create the preferred future for us? Who will be able to lead us into that future? Who can soothe the aching and the longing and the groaning and bring liberation? It's time for a pivot. And if we don't lead on the pivot, someone else will. By we, I mean the whole body of Christ. It's not all on us in this room. Because Jesus says we're the light of the world, didn't he? He said we can't be hidden. That indicates to me that there's a revealing going on. Some, we need to be seen. We're the light of the world. We exist to illuminate, to guide, to shine in the darkness. He says we're salt. We're here to preserve, to make things taste delicious, to stop the rot, to bring healing to the wounded. It's the role of the mature sons and daughters to take responsibility as image bearers, as co-laborers. That first um, uh, command or instruction that was given to us, go and increase, be fruitful. We have the mandate to rule and to reign, to bring leadership, to bring progress at this predicted pivot moment. We've sung this morning, if creation reveals your glory, so will I. If Uh, The angels will cry out. The rocks cry out. We cry out holy in this morning. We just want to encourage you to wonder, what does crying out holy, what does revealing his glory look like in your day tomorrow, not just in your singing today? What does your worship look like as you apply yourself to the city of Manchester or to this region to bring liberation to the bondage and the brokenness that we all are watching and hearing the aching. And so, 
I am joining with creation and I feel like I'm on my tiptoes. I feel like my neck is outstretched. I feel like I'm turning towards the future and there is an ache in me, but I feel like I can see and I love it to be alive at this time when the body of Christ is beginning to be mobilized and to say, yeah, we're going to put our hands up and we will allow the world to see who we are so that we can bring the hopeful Uh, sacrificial, compassionate love of Jesus, creative goodness, innovation and progress to our world so that we can see our cities and our communities and our neighbours transformed. So I feel like maybe I've asked a few questions and kind of landed some stuff and Paul, who is the really wise one, is going to hopefully bring some solutions and some answers to those questions. (laughs) Well done, Joy. Let's thank Joy. Fantastic. So yeah, so here's for some answers. Great. So Joy's given us the big picture. This is um, some of the meta-narrative that's going on in our nation at this time. And what I want to do is earth this into our lives so that when we leave this place, we can take hold of something that God is doing in our lives and that we can join him in. We want to join God in what he's doing. So as Joyce talked about, creation's longing for the sons and daughters, the children of God to be revealed. Creation's longing for that. Now creation isn't longing for some little toddlers to be revealed, to run around. Creation's longing for sons and daughters, mature children, followers of Jesus Christ, who can be revealed to the world around us. And Jesus says, when he's talking to his friends in John 15, he calls them together and he talks to them and says, my friends know the father's business. And I believe it's time for mature sons and daughters who know the father's business, who know the father himself, his nature and what he's like, but also know his business. They're the ones that need revealing to the world around us. And so what I want to encourage us to think about is how we're going to move into maturity. How we're going to grow in our faith so that we can continually extend who we are, but we can grow into maturity of following Jesus and represent him to the world around us. Acts chapter 2, I believe, gives us a little um, key just in the, in the center of this um, amazing story of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And as the Holy Spirit's poured out with fire and wind and chaos, as the people of God pour out onto the streets, it's, um, it causes confusion. And so Peter jumps up and says, let me explain to you what's taking place in this moment. And he quotes from the prophet Joel. And he says this, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy or hear the voice of God. They'll know what God's saying. Your, son, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. We still live in those days. As God has poured out his spirit upon us, we can hear the voice of God and follow him into all that he's got for us. And so Peter's doing a couple of things here. God's on the move and Peter begins to explain to the crowd, this is what God is doing. And we're going to come back to this in a moment, but I believe that's one of our jobs as mature followers of Jesus is to find out what is God doing and then to translate that to the world around us, to let the world know this is what God is about. This is who he is. This is what he's doing in our time. But he gives us a key of maturity. He says this, your young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. This isn't a point about gender. It's a point about maturity. And so following Jesus leads us into maturity of understanding things that are a bit more complex. 
You know, a vision is something that's clear, it's, it's accessible, it's often accurate. If you have a vision of something, you, people often talk about they'll have a vision of something that takes place in their mind's eye and actually it'll be a specific thing that's going to take place. Whereas a dream is full of symbolism, it's full of often confusion. How many of us wake up from dreams and go, what the heck was that about? Um, I hope that's not true. Or we just kind of, how do we make sense of this? See, dreams need grappling with. They cause us to ask questions. And I believe this is true for you and me, that we've got to move from a place where we move from things being easy and accurate into a place where we're grappling with stuff. We're pushing through the resistance, the things that might hold us back and saying, actually, we're willing to hear from God, even if it doesn't quite make sense even if we're not sure what to do with it. I believe there's an action required for us to grow into maturity. And I, I believe that action is called stewardship. Stewardship. I know that's not the word you were hoping for. You're hoping for more of like an action-packed word of something we're going to go and do. But stewardship, I believe, is the key, one of the key principles for us in the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about um, this simple process. He plants, Apollos watered, God provides the increase. So often we're looking for the increase, but our job is stewardship. Our job is to look after, to plant, to water, to look after what God has given us, and God provides the increase. We're in an increased, obsessed world. This week, Google in one day had 70 billion wiped off their shares just because they didn't grow at an expected rate. Their growth wasn't where it should have been. And so we move into, we're in a culture that's obsessed with growth and increase. And we too can get that mindset. Things have got to get bigger, got to increase, got to grow in our lives. Whereas we're called to stewardship. And I just wonder if we begin to think about, as Joyce placed us in this context of Genesis chapter 1, as those that are called to create and um, bring a cultural mandate to the world around us. We're called to bring dominion, to bring leadership to the world. What would happen if we viewed our families, our workplaces, our lives much more within the context of stewardship of what God has given us? Not looking for something else, not just looking for growth for the sake of it, but saying, God, what you've given me right now, what is in my hand today, I'm going to steward, I'm going to look after, I'm going to love. Because I believe if we're going to grow into maturity, stewardship is what we need. If you want to increase any area of your life, steward it. Look after it really well. Love it. So how are we going to do this? Because there's so many things that we can do to think about how we're going to grow in our faith. There's so many steps that we can take to grow into maturity. But I believe that what we've got to do is do what Peter does in this passage. He talks to the people about what he's found out about what God is doing. And so we've got to ask the question, God, what are you doing in my workplace? What are you up to in the world around me? And how can I join you in that? When God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and I'd love you to read that story this week. He calls Abraham to himself and he says, in my paraphrased version of the Bible, he says, hey Abraham, I'm going to go and set up a nation. Do you want to come? And Abraham packs up his whole family, says yes to God without even knowing the land that he's going to. Don't underestimate the courage that it takes to hear from God and to respond with passion and with courage and to say, God, I believe what you've said over my life and who I am and what you're doing in the world around me. God is at work in your workplace. God is at work in your community. And when we begin to ask God, God, what are you doing and how can I join you in what you're doing? He will begin to give us keys, people we can speak to, opportunities to share the good news of Jesus, all sorts of things that we can do. But it's about finding him and what he's up to. 
I've seen this in my, my own life in so many um, different ways. And Phil alluded to some of those things have been more challenging. Some of those things have been easier. And God um, has taken me on a real journey of, um, I believe my life is about unlocking dreams in people. Dreams while they're awake and dreams while they're asleep. And God's begun to speak to me um, through dreams. And um, as he's done that, I've begun to encounter God in loads of different ways. And um, that's meant... Sometimes confusion and grappling with stuff, but sometimes that's led to, to great opportunities. Um, last year, God spoke to me through a dream that I had. And in this dream, um, I was walking into a supermarket. And as I walk into the supermarket, I go to pick up a red cabbage. I must have been hungry in my dream. And I go to pick up this red cabbage, and this guy rudely pushes past me and picks up this cabbage. And he turns to me, and in my dream, in, in the dream I'm thinking, I don't know who he is, but I vaguely recognize him. And, um, and I have this odd moment in the dream where I'm kind of thinking, as a church pastor, he probably comes to church. Let's smile and pretend you know him. And um, so I smile to him and say, oh, hi, how are you doing? And he says, oh, don't you hate it when that happens? It's really unfair, isn't it? Someone gets the last one. It's really unfair. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I suppose it is. I suppose it is unfair. Um, it's a bit irritating. And um, he says, yeah, do you know what I do when that happens? I'm like, I don't know, what do you do? He says, I go to war. When there's an injustice, I go to war. And so I, I said to him, okay, that's cool. That's pretty good. And he says, if you, want, if you want any more red cabbages, though, they're just down the aisle. So I look down the aisle in my dream, and I can picture it now. And I walk down, and I pick out this red cabbage. And I lift it out, and I turn to him and say, do you know what? You're right. It's time to go to war on injustice. And then I wake up. And that dream and that statement has marked my prayers my walk with God over the last nine months, as to understand what does it mean to go to war on injustice. And in reality, as I look at that, that could mean all sorts of things. It's huge. If you look at the world and the injustice in the world, it's absolutely massive. But one of the things that God's laid on my heart is to pray through the organization Open Doors for persecuted Christians. And so I regularly pray for Christians in North Korea and India. And as I've done that, I'm often sat there praying, thinking, do they know that I'm praying for them? Does the Holy Spirit encounter them and say, hey, Paul in Lincoln is praying for you? Or do they, is, does anything change? And I'm like, I don't even see any change. I don't know what's taking place, but I believe that what God has given me is the next step. And as we follow those next steps with God, I believe that what he leads us into is a magnificent adventure of his plans and his purposes for the world around us. You see, God has a plan for this nation. He has a plan for this city. He has a plan for your workplace, your community, your home, that he's longing for you to join him in. He wants to call you into his story and to say, hey, if we work together, my plans and my purposes will come to pass. The Bible is clear. The plans of God prevail. The plans of God prevail. And so as we join him in those things, I believe we'll see incredible things take place. Henry Blackaby, one of my favorite writers, says this, if Christians around the world were to suddenly renounce their personal agendas, their life goals and their aspirations, and begin responding in radical obedience to everything God showed them, the world would be turned upside down. How do we know? Because that's what the first century Christians did, and the world is still talking about it. The world is still talking about what a group of Christians did as they got hold of the promises of God and the purposes of God for their time. And I believe that, as Joyce shared, there's a big picture narrative of what's going on. There's a pivot about to take place. And I believe that we can step up and we can begin to ask God, God, what are you saying? What are you doing in the world around me that I can join you in? And as we join him in what he's doing, we will see incredible things take place. But we've got to take the next step in obedience and follow him. It requires radical 
stewardship of what we have, radical obedience into the next steps that God is calling us into. And I'd love, to, I'd love us to pray now. I'd love us to pray together. Joy, would you come and um, join me? Because I believe that if we're going to step into some of these things, we've got to allow the stirring of the Holy Spirit to speak to us about what is going on in our communities and workplaces around our lives today, where God has placed us today, the place you're going to go to when you leave here, the place you're going to go to tomorrow morning, to begin to ask God, God, what are you doing? How can you give me the courage to believe that what you're doing in and through me and around my life is joining your purposes? And we're going to see incredible things through that. So can we pray together?